This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. We've been running several stories about how Pacific Islanders are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. They make up only 4% of the population, but more than a third of the COVID-19 cases here in Hawaii. The state struggles to effectively respond to the needs of Hawaii's Pacific Islander communities. Uh, it's mobilized communities themselves to fill the gap in outreach and services they so desperately need right now. HPR's Kuwait Hirishi is here to share some of what she's learned from one particular Pacific Islander group. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, that's right. The, the health department has been reporting these uh, disproportionately high rates of COVID-19 among Pacific Islander communities since since April. In, in the five months since, that, that number really hasn't come down. And so when we talk about uh, Pacific Islanders in terms of what the Department of Health is using as a definition, we're talking about Samoans, Tongans, Marshallese, Micronesians, and, and Palauans, but there are, and Chamorro, uh, but uh, Native Hawaiians would be that one uh, that has their own category. And while there are similarities amongst these groups, um, they are, every community is different. And so when you think about how do we intervene and stop the spread of COVID in this particular community, there are specific ways to do that. And so for this story, I had reached out to the Marshallese community, uh, which uh, up until now has, has stood up the Marshall Islands COVID-19 task force. And it was really an all-volunteer grassroots effort among Marshallese uh, medical professionals, uh, amongst community leaders on every island, really. Uh, I did not realize that they had this vast network already set up in place where they've sort of just found each other and figured out, okay, now would be a good time for us to work together on this because we're seeing it across the state. And um, what also, so they hold uh, virtual weekly meetings where they can exchange information. Okay, this person has it. Uh, we heard these families are struggling with this. They've organized food drives and mask drives, but they're now getting to the point where they're going to take on more, I'd say, official roles in, in intervention. They've stood up a rapid response team. And so, which really happened organically, uh, Isabella Silks, Council General for the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and she says uh, uh, much of the outreach that they were doing in educating folks on where resources are and how they could tap into uh, rental aid, for example, or health care, that turned into a let us know if you need anything, call us anytime. And uh, Silk kind of explains a, a situation where that happened while she was at dinner late at night. There was one time um, my husband and I and the kids were eating dinner and then somebody called me and said, it's one of our task force members said, um, somebody at home just found out that um, they're positive and it's already like 9 p.m. And they know because we've been doing public outreach, like when you're positive, you have to stay home. You have to be quarantined because you're not infected, so you don't infect others. Mm -hmm. So the person really wanted to respect that guidance, so they didn't want to leave their house. So when they called me, the person wasn't living far away from me. I stopped my dinner and then drove to um, one of the local um, restaurants here, got takeout, and then dropped it off. So we're hearing that in, in the uh, different communities on, on the uh, different islands that they're kind of shaping or kind of taking their own responsibility to be there in terms of any family that all of a sudden finds themselves in a situation where I can't go out. I don't even know what my, um, my positive test results mean. How do I properly quarantine? 
the this information is available and and you know uh, from the State Department of Health, but. Uh, what Silk and what the task force is trying to do is 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 translate that and be more accessible to their community. Uh, Big Island doctor, Marshallese physician Wilfred Alik is chairman of the task force. Uh, do you know Dr. Alik? I don't know him, but he is one of two Mar- Marshallese doctors uh, who graduated from JABSM, from uh, yes. UH Medical School. That is correct. He spent uh, most of his life now, he says, here. Uh, or outside uh, of his home, he's uh, from uh, Jolouette in in the Marshall Islands. But he says the the group is also getting ready to tackle contact tracing, uh, which has proven challenging for the state to operate. And so the task force wants to train community members who already have a command for the language um, to provide language and cultural support to the contact tracing efforts already in place by the state. Uh, so uh, understanding the biology, perhaps, or the epidemiology of the coronavirus, how it spreads so that they can translate specific medical terms, right, into uh, to their community. So Dr. Leek says that, that bridging that cultural and language gap is, is critical to effectively reaching the local Marshallese community. And he thinks it's something that uh, the state, if had they had done it earlier, could have made a big difference. This is where I think the state, uh, if they had reached out to the Australian uh, communities and recruit contact tracers and train them, it would really make a difference because who else is best, you know, you know going into a community that they understand is to provide, you know, you know uh, outreach that's, you know, culturally competent. Wow. Otherwise, it's going to fall on deaf ears. So it, it, it'll be interesting to watch this stand up, but this soon-to-be trained uh, cadre of community volunteers would also provide Information on wraparound services, as I mentioned, rental assistance or health care, but also uh, sort of a follow-up support during that testing period, right, where they're waiting for their tests. Are they going to get contacted by the state? They have all these questions. Uh, this group uh, eventually, they hope, uh, can stand up a Marshallese language COVID-19 hotline uh, to be available to their community. And so culture is a big part uh, of that resilience a factor that Dr. Alik was mentioning. He says uh, there are cultural strengths that they can rely on to craft their message uh, to the Marshallese community. I know uh, my colleague uh, Ashley Mizuo had done some good coverage on sort of uh, the state's efforts at communicating the message of COVID-19 to Pacific Islander communities. Um, and so you guys should fig- check that one out. Uh, but for Dr. Alik, he says culture and understanding really the collective good would be a great idea for people to craft that message specifically to the Marshallese community. The collective good, yeah, it's all for the common good, okay? It's all about the us, not the individual. It's about the ohana, and not that one person, right? Yeah, like, you know, getting all the families together, saying, you know what, we're doing this for... Kimba. Kimba is like, you know, grandpa in our language. Uh-huh. We're doing this for boo-boo. Boo is like, you know, grandma. So you do everything for the sake of the family. It was interesting. And I'd asked him, okay, does that mean that when we tell them be safe and keep yourself safe, that, you know, it it doesn't translate? And he's like, it, it does translate, but it doesn't have as much weight on this sense of kuleana that Marshallese have for others in their family. When you tell it to them like that, there's a little, they'll take a little bit more notice because they don't want to you know, uh, hurt grandma to right. or boo-boo. <laughs> it, it's interesting, you know, because uh, uh, there was a, I just got a text a short while ago, for, uh, the Kukua Council apparently oh, has made good on a legal threat because they were asking the health department for information related to, uh, you know, contact tracers and is this information translated to these different Pacific Island, you know, ethnic groups. 
Uh, and they had a deadline this morning. Apparently, they didn't get it, but they, they did take some legal action this morning. Uh, and uh, uh, interestingly, you know, when, when you talk about this task force here, I first found out about that concept when I called over to Arkansas right you know, uh, months ago right and then they had a task force that was already working because of all those workers that were in the tyson chicken plants that's right i remember you you did do that that piece and local marshallese according to dr alik are doing relatively well compared to their counterparts on the mainland uh the numbers that he was given by the state department of health was that of the 900 cases that they know to be pacific islanders marshallese account for uh, only 70 of that 900 and so when you think about the rates that we're they're seeing that population is seeing in arkansas it's a it's a big difference yeah so it it's uh it's interesting how the the grassroots community is just kind of they're taking care of themselves in absence of of anything coming down from government exactly dr ali could mentioned that saying you know we wanted to be part of the solution uh, and we needed to mobilize because there are families and individuals Marshallese who really don't want to get involved or um, you know might not understand what's going on and so having a community group that they can rely on for things like contact tracing or rapid response um, may prove to be very effective in the coming uh, months so we'll see how this task force plays out yeah I'm uh eager to see if we'll see any TV commercials uh, in those different languages. I think that's definitely on the horizon. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi. You can find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. Young people are demanding government action on climate change, and many of them are voting. Climate change is just the earth trying to send us signals about like all the things that are going wrong. A young Latina looks for a candidate who will encourage investment in clean energy, and she's not alone. How climate change is motivating young Latino voters, it's on the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Ulana, Umau, Ugaholabe, Oham, 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we are heading to the garden to look for an invasive species native to Southeast Asia that arrived in Hawaii almost 20 years ago. Big Island workers at a Paniava nursery reported painful stings while handling palms back in September of 2001. Authorities identified the problem as Darna palavita, a caterpillar that's covered with rows of poisonous spines. Its color varies, ranging from white to light gray, with a dark stripe running down the length of the back. Populations peak during the summer months. If you happen to come across one of these critters in the wild, touching them is not recommended. The warning stems from the fact that the spines covering the caterpillars will cause a burning sensation when they touch human skin. Now, according to the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, the caterpillar has been found to attack more than 35 different plants in the Hilo area, including gardenia, tea, mamaki, and wili-wili. For today's quiz, can you tell us the common name for the caterpillar species, Darna palavita? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. eviction continues to loom over thousands of island residents. The state moratorium runs out at the end of the month, while the president has taken steps to put off evictions until the end of the year. To get a better sense of the issue, the conversation's producer Harrison Patino uh, spoke with Tom Helper of the Hawaii Appleseed Center for Economic Law and Justice. The fact that we have a 13 percent unemployment rate is really having a, a devastating effect on the rental market right now, that there are just tens of thousands of tenants who simply cannot afford the rents they could afford back when they had jobs. And so the reality of that is difficult for everyone, you know, the tenants, the landlords, lenders, uh, but the people who, who feel the effects most immediately are the tenants who are worried about having a roof over their heads in the next few weeks. There are some individuals who have been able to pay rent up till now because uh, the federal benefits were coming in. Those benefits have now stopped. There are other folks who had trouble paying because of delays in getting benefits. But the big picture is that there are many, many families in Hawaii that are hurting very badly and We really need to avoid the tsunami of evictions that would cause uh, homelessness, that would cause people to move in, you know, double and triple up families in one unit, uh, which is not safe under disease conditions. So it's great 
that the governor has recognized this issue. So it's, it's a little bit of a blunt instrument, and it, it does make things very difficult for landlords, but it is really the only way to sort of put things on hold while we try to get the benefits situation sorted out, while we try to get the big-picture economic situation sorted, and it really is essential to preventing mass homelessness. So if or when that moratorium would expire... How many people are we thinking here in Hawaii that that would affect? How many people are sitting on the cusp of eviction? Well, I don't know that anybody has really great numbers for that. I, I think UH did a study. That, so the, the numbers I've seen range from 10,000 to three or four times that number of people who would potentially be evicted. Well, even though the conservative estimate there is it's not an insignificant number. Oh, it's huge. It's extremely significant, yeah. And the elephant in the room there that you bring up before is that if mass evictions, even to that more conservative estimate, were to go through, that would already complicate an already serious homelessness issue. So should the state be doing more here? Well, certainly, I think the need to bolster social services, you know, the homelessness services, homelessness was a crisis before this, obviously. And our social service providers were already overstressed. I, I think it's a matter of the legislature appropriating money or spending the federal money that it has on these issues, on supporting uh, on rental assistance, on social service support, and probably on land, some landlord assistance as well, do what we can to prevent that wave of evictions and homelessness. So give me an example of the sort of push and pull that occurs between a tenant and a landlord. How is that process even further complicated during a pandemic? Right now, there, I think the great majority of tenants are paying rent. Most of them are paying their full rent because of the benefits or savings or whatever. So the great majority of people, even during the moratorium, even though they know they can't be evicted, most people are still paying rent. There are many others who are unable to pay rent, full rent, who are paying partial rent. And we're aware that there are many, many landlords that have worked constructively with their tenants to work out payment plans, to work out reduced rent, to prevent people from having to be evicted. Because the landlords know it's not like there's a whole bunch of tenants out there who are able to pay full rent or be able to pay the rents that were being charged before. So most landlords, I think, are, you know, acting appropriately and working with their tenants. Unfortunately, there are a handful of landlords who are trying to skirt the law and to evict tenants in violation of the moratorium. And we actually have a potential lawsuit against one such landlord that we're looking closely at now. But we definitely want to send out the message to landlords that they shouldn't violate the, the moratorium and to tenants that they have the right to remain in their homes, even if they're not able to pay rent right now. Now, who's going through these evictions? Is it more the larger apartment complexes or is it a mom and pop landlord type situation that are evicting tenants out of their homes? We're aware of only a handful of cases of these wrongful eviction cases. I know that legal aid is getting something along the line of 25 to 30 inquiries a week about the issue. Some of that is just people asking, okay, what are my rights here? Some of it those people complaining about being locked out or evicted. My impression is it is probably more the smaller mom-and-pop landlords who are doing it because they maybe don't quite realize what their legal obligations and responsibilities are and that the, the larger landlords do and are smarter and are, are sort of biting the bullet and, and enduring the tough times because they know they're not allowed to evict and that it doesn't, it's not in their financial interest to evict because it's going to end up costing them more money in the long run. 
that's a long way of saying I think that most of the folks who are most of the landlords who are threatening eviction are the smaller landlords. Now, when you have a tenant who believes to be facing a wrongful eviction, what's their first course of action? Well, the first thing to do is try to work out a payment plan or something with your landlord. If that doesn't work and they're still threatening to evict you, then by all means call legal aid. The housing unit legal aid is very experienced at handling wrongful eviction cases and general landlord-tenant disputes, and they're experienced in, in dealing with landlords who are attempted to violate the law. So I guess to dispel the myth of the evil landlord here, do you think it's mostly a case of landlords trying to go through with evictions without realizing that there are you know, legal safeguards in place? I think that's true in the great majority of cases. I also think that there are some landlords uh, that are going to push as far as they can up to the legal line, and then some of them are going to cross over the line. And that's that's a real problem. One of the cases that we're looking at, uh, it's a, a landlord who owns a couple of dozen units in Waipahu and who threatened by te- actually threatened by text message, told his tenant, pay rent or get out, essentially. Uh, and he uh, gave the tenant uh, just a couple days' notice to vacate along with his wife and nine-year-old son. And now they've been forced to live with the tenant's grandparents, which is just a a bad, bad from a health point of view, additional exposures, additional crowding. But I think that's the worst case scenario. I think that most landlords don't do that. Most landlords recognize their obligations. So, yes, I think it's the extreme case that gets us involved. So just locationally speaking here, are we seeing the majority of these evictions going through or trying to go through on Oahu and Honolulu, or is this an island-wide issue? I think it's island-wide. I just want to make sure that the landlords who are tempted to, uh, you know, cross over the line and threaten to evict their tenants recognize that it, it's illegal and that tenants do have rights. We recognize it's definitely a challenging situation for people who have to pay mortgages, who are dependent upon rental income for paying their own bills. But the big picture for the state is that we have to avoid the mass homelessness that would occur if we didn't have the eviction moratorium, if we didn't have the legal protections in place to tell landlords that they cannot evict. And so it's it's just essential right now that people look for the sources of federal benefits, state benefits, loan forbearances, things like that. And hopefully we can get through this together over the next few months. That was the conversation's Harrison Patino talking with Tom Helper of the Hawaii Appleseed Center on the status of evictions here in the islands. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today looks at term limits. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us on this Tuesday morning. Hi there. Good morning. Aloha Tuesday, Catherine. Yes. And you know, (laughs) I did not realize that as far as term limits that we're kind of all over the map here. Yeah, this is is something that hasn't been reported yet. But when voters statewide um, 
fill out their ballots, there's going to be questions about the charters. So that's the governing document for each county, right? So each county has its own charter. Uh, and this go around, there are actually more than 30 charter amendment questions, not 30 for each county. It's divided up seven for this county, four for that and so forth. Uh, but uh, among those, there is a theme and that is of term limits. And there are term limits proposed uh, for several offices, one at the city and county of Honolulu here on Oahu, uh, one for Hawaii County, and then two proposals on Maui, which of course uh, features Lanai and Molokai. Now, the one for Honolulu is term limits for the prosecutor. Yes, this one is timely. Uh, here on Oahu, the mayor and the council are limited to two four year consecutive terms. But the prosecutor, it's an unlimited uh, term of office, and that's why, in part, we've only had two uh, city prosecutors <laughs> for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, Peter Carlisle, who also served as mayor for a while, and then, of course, Keith Kaneshiro, who technically is still on the job. He's been on paid leave uh, since last March. That's related to him being, as we all know, a target in this uh, ongoing investigation tied to uh, Catherine K. Aloha. So this proposal uh, would actually put the city prosecutor uh, in line with uh, two four-year terms, same with the mayor, same with the council. Yeah, I think when I started reporting, it was Charles Marslin, I think, was the (laughs) prosecutor way back when. Oh, yeah, that's, that brings up a whole bunch of stuff. But uh, it is interesting. The The proposal came from Ron Menor, the council member, who, by the way, is term limited. He's finishing up his last <laughs> term of office at the council. Uh, the resolution that passed makes no mention of, of Keith Kaneshiro, but it does bring up uh, some words that uh, I think strongly make it very clear that it has a lot to do with Keith Kaneshiro. Uh, the resolution warns about entrenched power. It warns about abuse of power. Um, and sure enough, there are some people that testified for and against it. I should just point out, Peter Carlisle actually wrote in against the idea for term limits for prosecutors. He said, if you're going to do that, you're really going to limit the pool of qualified applicants to run for the office. Uh, and just one other aside, of course, uh, Steve Alm and Megan Cow are running this year to replace uh, Kaneshiro. Right. And and I know, you know, there is a need to increase or restore public confidence in the system. Mm-hmm. And with Kaneshiro uh, receiving that target letter and still under investigation, um, that certainly does, you know, make sense. Pe- people would say, well, yeah, you, you, you can't, you shouldn't have someone in there that's going to be in office for such a long time like that. Well, in theory, he could have actually have run uh, again, mm-hmm. even though he is on paid leave. Of course, that would seem to be absurd. But that's uh, when we talk about the Kaloha case, a lot of absurdities come up. So so that's the, the situation for Oahu on the Big Island in Hawaii County. Uh, there actually are not really uh, term limits uh, for the uh, prosecutor. There is nothing proposed uh, to limit Uh, the prosecutor on that island. But there is a proposal to change uh, how we elect some of those offices, specifically the the council members. They are currently limited to two-year terms for no more than eight consecutive years, right? So that's the max you can serve. Well, there's a proposal to make that four-year terms for a maximum of eight years, right? So same amount of time in office, eight years, but you'd have to run again several times on the current system 
they want to change it. They are proposing voters on that island change it to running every four years. Uh, and we'll see how they they view that. Um, one person who testified, Jim Albertini, a lot of yes. folks probably know him from his activism. He actually wrote in that, um, you know, politicians are like diapers. They need to be changed <laughs> regularly. That's the so best quote. Here, yeah, that's a, that's a solid quote. But uh, we'll see how it turns out. There are pros and cons, according to the Charter Commission on that island, on, on what is better, two years uh, or four years. And then finally, we should say um, on Maui, there are no term limit questions for Kauai County. But on Maui, uh, there are changes proposed for both the mayor and the council. The mayor is currently limited to two consecutive uh, four uh, full terms, four-year terms, council uh, two-year terms for a total of five consecutive times. And they w- the, the question would actually remove the word consecutive. It essentially would limit those offices. So on Maui, they're looking at uh, Maui mayor and county uh, council members. And then on, so Kauai, uh, Yes, no questions at all, yeah. but I just a quick, yeah, I'll just give you a quick update. Uh, there's uh, no limit to the prosecutor, and that prosecutor, Justin Kohler, actually won in the primary and faces nobody in the general. And then the mayor is limited to two four-year uh, consecutive maximum terms, and the council, it's four uh, times for two-year terms. Boy, that's a mouthful, is it? Read the story on Civil <laughs> okay. Beat. It's all laid out much better than I can say it this morning. No, but <laughs> it, it is just so interesting that it's just different for each county. I, it is. Didn't, didn't occur to me. But thank you so much, right, this, Chad. You got it, Catherine. I did the best I could. <laughs> all righty. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We get an update on the search for extraterrestrial life. Here's this week's Stargazer. Stargazer time, our look into the massive universe around our tiny troubled planet, and as usual, things we can also try to spot in our dark island skies. We've got Christopher Phillips to guide us through it with his astronomy skills, and wouldn't you know it, we've got him right here on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn can all be seen in the southeastern sky after sunset. Venus will also be visible in the east before dawn. The moon this week is waning and approaching its new moon phase towards week's end. This, of course, means conditions will be great for stargazing. And you've got one of everyone's favorite topics, apparently, all queued up for this week, the search for extraterrestrials. What do you have for us, Chris? Well, a new study from an international team led by the University of Manchester are expanding their search for extraterrestrial life in the universe. The team are using data from the Gaia Space Telescope and the Green Bank Radio Telescope in Virginia to search for techno-signatures in our area of the galaxy. 
in this new study, they have expanded the search to 288,000 stars. Explain technosignature and its importance. Well, this is an indicator of technology developed by an extraterrestrial civilization, such as radio broadcasts or even radar signals. From our own experience, we know that our radio broadcasts and even radar signals from those like air traffic control have been leaking into space for decades and can be detected. However, nothing incoming has been detected so far, but astronomers are determined to refine their search techniques in order to more efficiently search the sky. And with so many potential targets, tell us a little bit about how they choose one. Well, they're looking for stars that overlap between data sets of different telescopes like Gaia and Greenbank, for example. And so far, they concentrated on a local area around about 160 light years. But now they've decided to push that out, and they're casting a much bigger net out to about 33,000 light years. So that's an awful lot of stars. And considering stars come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, what are they looking for in terms of one that might be most likely to have some sort of life? Well, in an effort to broaden their search, they're actually broadening the types of stars they look at. So things like white dwarves, giant stars, and of course the obvious ones like main sequence stars like our own sun. By expanding this search and using multiple telescopes, they're hoping that catching one of these elusive signals, if they really do exist, might be a bit easier. Another exciting episode, and we'll be tuned in and waiting for a follow-up from you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week for Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. In this morning's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about the invasive insect known as Darna palavita, first discovered in a Paniava nursery in September 2001. The species is commonly found in Southeast Asia and is known to feed on a diet consisting predominantly of coconut, palms, and grasses. If you ever see one in the wild, be wary. The spines covering these caterpillars can cause an awful burning sensation when they touch your skin. Now, the moth seems to be more active in the summer months, but is also active throughout the year. According to the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources, the caterpillar has been found to attack about 35 different plants in the Hilo area, including banana, mondo grass, coffee, and macadamia. Smaller larvae only feed on the leaf surface, which creates a windowpane effect. For today's quiz, we wanted to know if you could tell us the name, the common name for Darna palavita. The answer is the nettle caterpillar. And congrats to Leslie Hopp of Kaimu Key. You got it right. She shares she has a very large yard and fortunately has never encountered this pest. Thank goodness. Uh, you may remember that the Hawaii Department of Agriculture and U.S. Department of Agriculture introduced a natural enemy back in 2010. It was a eulophyte, a type of parasitic fly imported from Taiwan. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual open house this Sunday. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Join us tonight at 8 p.m. on HPR2 for the next in our Hawaii Symphony Orchestra broadcasts. Advisor Joanne Folletta conducts a program featuring Dvorak's captivating Eighth Symphony. And acclaimed violinist Bella Christova performs a concerto written by her husband, David Ludwig, as an ode to the union of marriage. That's today at 8 p.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Furniture Plus Design. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat with outpatient services in Hilo, offering IV therapy and mind-body therapies to treat depression, anxiety, and eating disorders. HawaiiNaturopathicRetreat.com. The COVID-19 health and economic crisis has put more emphasis on diversifying our economy, which includes giving agriculture a boost. All this week, we put the focus on what's possible for ulu, or breadfruit. We take you to the garden aisle and introduce you to Tom Pickett, a baker with a passion for a challenge, and that challenge is ulu. We start off in the kitchen, in the back of the house of the Kilauea Bakery and Pauhana Pizza Place. Okay, so we're walking into your walk-in freezer now. Yes, our, our, actually our freezer, we call that Alaska, and our refrigerator's name is Oregon. Okay, we're going to Oregon. <laughs> Easier to describe. mozzarella and we uh, shred this ahead of time and then make portions it's in restaurants you're always thinking about efficiency so we portion it out and make it ready for a pizza and, and for our listeners you basically have an industrial sized tray that's just filled with this big slab, cheese. Big yeah, slab. slab of white cheese if you want to try it right there. It's plain, you know, it's like keep the flavor neutral, fairly neutral. Yeah, it is cheesy. Yeah. Then, uh, let's see, I think our cream cheese I can show you outside over by the bagels, but look at this ferment. I know, you're pulling out this big container. Big white bucket. And this is fermented breadfruit. That's all it is. There's no other ingredients except some salinity from the from the brine. Um, and we we call it fa'amasi, which is a Samoan term for the ferment. You can just give it a little taste. Yeah, it's very tart. Ferment, uh, if anybody's been to Polynesia and tried a, a pit fermented breadfruit, their reaction is usually curls their nose, but. Um, we, we, you know, finish it off in four days and then refrigerate it. So it's not something that has sat in the ground for a year. It's good. Yeah, it's fruity. Now let's go see how that bread came out of the oven. Okay, we're leaving Oregon. <laughs> Going back to Hawaii. <laughs> and how long has that been fermenting? I think that batch, I did that batch uh, at the end of the summer. That's how Polynesians... Micronesians, Samoans used to preserve their crop because if, you know, at the end of the season, you, what else do you have on your island? Right, Some right. coconuts and taro. And if you're going out on a, on so a canoe, have, you yeah. can uh, carry, it carry it with, with you. you. Yeah, so they had to preserve that somehow so they could eat for the rest of the year. 
And here's more of our conversation in the kitchen where the ovens were going full blast with an assortment of breads and pizza. It's all about getting creative with Ulu. It's trial and error with a dash of creativity. We buy the breadfruit locally and it comes down into the backyard in wagons and then we cut it into, into uh, quarters or six and then we steam it for not completely mushy steamy but 20 minutes a uh, pressure cooker and then we cool it and then we grind it up in our um, large food processor it's called a, a Hobart bowl chopper so we can chop 180 pounds at a time um, that turns it into a meal like sand like a coarse sand and so that is what we use to make bread we I in the beginning I didn't want I, I thought wait a minute why spend all this energy and all this electricity to dry the breadfruit and then make bread and then add it to the recipe and add water so we go fresh there's nobody uh, it, it's expensive if you if you uh, processed fresh breadfruit as a business it just sounded too expensive to me because you I mean I can buy uh, wheat flour for uh, 30 cents a pound uh, cornmeal for let me see $30 you know, for very cheap so um, how could you make ulu flour how could you make ulu products affordable so you can sell them right so making the uh, flour would be if I buy if I buy fruit for a dollar a pound from the farmer and then take out 75, 80% of its weight, the price per pound of that flour is gonna be six times more. Right, so, so you basically then are experimenting with different products. You've got the Ulu pizza. Right, so, so in the beginning, this was uh, uh, about five years ago I keep a project on the side with with our business uh, you know we've been doing this for 30 years uh, we have all kinds of bakery and uh, soups and salads and but still I I get bored easily so there's one little project at a time and about five years ago I, I picked on breadfruit so I had uh, I had a customer come in a long time ago and he said what are you gonna do if the barges stop coming, what would you sell? And um, I chewed on that for quite a quite a while before I thought. And, and I thought back then, breadfruit is breadfruit. <laughs> that the word works. So uh, so once I started using breadfruit and working out the the processing and then mixing it, um, every time I turned around, it was a new surprise. So I've got. I don't know, 15 different, I've tried pastries, I've tried muffins, I've tried uh, pizza dough, bagels, bread, um, and all those formulas, uh, my rules to start with was keep the ingredients in the, in the 20s, latitude 20 north and latitude 20 south. So we've got a little rice flour sometimes to dry out the recipe. The main ingredient is breadfruit, and then coconut oil uh, sometimes, coconut milk, depending on the recipe. So, 
A lot of it's just trial by error, trial and error. Oh, and, uh, lots of error. Yes. <laughs> lots and, of error. And, uh, like and surprisingly, even the mistakes taste good. So you're eating it and you go, well, it's not what I wanted, but I want more. <laughs> yeah. So, there, yeah. There was a, oh, what do they call that? You know, serendipity, right? You, you, right? you find something good when you're looking for something else. Right, I don't know. Right. Well, they say, you know, in, in uh, a lot of, lot of famous uh, foods are were mistakes in the very beginning. What do you find sells of the different products that you make with what we What we have put on the menu from my uh, bunch of experiments is, is the bagel, uh, the bread, and, and this is selling towards, a lot of this is going towards uh, the growing number of people who want gluten-free food. So uh, the bagels, the bread, and then a, we have a pizza dough, so if somebody comes in and wants a gluten-free pizza dough, uh, we have that. Um, but then I started going further out of bounds. And uh, we, we have customers that ask for pizzas without, with dairy-free cheese. And I don't know if you've ever tried it, but if you find a commercial dairy-free cheese around, um, we, we had to buy it you know, on the mainland, uh, soy-based. And it was always terrible. It was like, you, okay, if that's what you want, we'll make you a pizza, but it's going to be like there's plastic on it. You know, it just doesn't melt and, uh, and is, is, is ex extremely expensive after shipping. So I thought, um, after the Breadfruit uh, World Summit over at, uh, at the Polynesian uh, Cultural Center, I came home. Yeah, with some ideas, with some of the, the fermented breadfruit ideas that some of the Micronesians had there. And I thought, well, I like fermenting. We've got fermented vegetables. We've got sourdough starters. And I thought, well, let's ferment this, right? Checked online. I broke it down. First, first thing I did was I did it actual Micronesian style. So I went down and I got some seawater because they part of the process is brining but they use seawater and it's called pit fermentation I didn't actually dig a pit but I used uh, buckets and stuff and, but we've refined it it ferments wonderfully and and just surprisingly it, it's about a four-day process and at the end of the four days once you make it smooth in the in the bowl chopper and put it into a bucket into its anaerobic storage state if you don't get it into the refrigerator soon, the bucket just starts, it just, the top comes off. It's it just, explodes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had our ferment tested in, at labs, at a lab in California, and it had twice the uh, probiotic lactobacillus um, bacteria that yogurt has. So it was just beautiful stuff. I'm not sure how I got the cheese from that, but I started looking into recipes and methods of making a cheese substitute. We've got a mozzarella cheese substitute made from breadfruit that is solid at 40 degrees. You can shred it on a cheese shredder, sprinkle it on the pizza. It's the right color. It's, it's a white, creamy white color. It, it melts. It's the you're gonna have to draw the line, and it doesn't stretch. It's not okay. like not mozzarella, quite mozzarella, but close enough. But it's much more palatable than than these other brands. So, from there, I went to a cream cheese, a spread, uh, an ulu cheese spread, 
and then an, a neat little butter I did. Those, both those, since they're not cooked, they're live foods. So, so we serve the uh, cream cheese, the Ulu-style cream cheese, uh, on our bagels. And so you're actually getting a little bit, it's like eating yogurt. So your customers, are they a lot of tourists or do you have people that just kind of grew up on breadfruit and are willing to try something different? We, we, we get both. The, we have to make many more ulu bagels in the morning uh, to satisfy their needs. And moving from the kitchen, we sat down at a table outdoors and Tom Pickett brought out samples for an ulu feast. Okay, so tell us what you brought out here. Well, we brought out a pizza with tomatoes and artichokes and olives. The different part about the pizza is that the crust is made with, uh, with ulu, with breadfruit, and so is the cheese. So those are two of our formulas. Over here is a breadfruit bagel. I spread it with our cream cheese look-alike, made from ulu, and hummus. So um, it makes great hummus. There are some recipes out there, uh, but just take any garbanzo hummus and substitute breadfruit the way I described uh, steaming and chopping right. which I did I also described that on our web page too and then our loaf of bread so I can cut the bread here this is this is the tough part radio you can't see it you can't see it yeah. and you can see that it's got a crumb it's got holes in it it's tender so give that a squeezer it reports oh, back, yeah. you squeeze it, it springs back, it just makes great bread. And that, like I say, there's no, uh, the only other, the, the only dry flour in it is a little bit of brown rice flour. Ulu with a little help from brown rice. That was Chef Tom Pickett of Kilauea Bakery and Pauhana Pizza, located at the historic Okonglung Market on the road to the lighthouse. He was sharing his creations of Ulu cream cheese, Ulu bagels, and Ulu pizza. And he told me this morning he has added a ulu noodle for pad thai and a ulu chocolate cake to the menu. Hats off to his ingenuity with ulu. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow you'll get to meet who many regard as the mother of the breadfruit movement. We share Diane Rangoni's story. We'd like to hear from you. Got a story about Ulu? You can call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.